0: When I was a kid, that's something I say a lot on this show, isn't it? When I was a kid, I had a lot of nightmares. This is well-trodden territory on this podcast, but some of the most terrifying ones I remember were about weather: strong weather, destructive weather. I remember one dream about a tornado ripping through the woods nearby my childhood home. In the dream, I stood at the back of the door watching the terrible cone of wind rip entire trees out of the ground and toss them aside like popsicle sticks. I watched as the tornado, with a mind of its own, spotted me watching it, turned, and began heading for my house. I remember another about a storm, an uncharacteristically strong rainstorm which was dumping water onto my elementary school. I dreamed the water kept coming through the cracks around the closed windows and underneath doors. Slowly, at first, and then quicker and quicker. I dreamt the school's hallways filled with water, making it impossible to get out. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories of weather and what comes with it. In the first, The Rain Caller, a drought causes a group of farmers to take justice into their own hands. In the second, oligarch who came from the fog, two newcomers to a small mining town share one too many secrets. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. what, nearly 30 years ago at this point? All our crops had died. From crabby old Russell Masters fields to Harrison Garvey's acres, all of them were dead. We grew a little bit of everything, but now, collectively, we had miles of dry, stunted stalks with no fruits to show for it. For the third year in a row this had happened, A freak drought of a severity and length the likes of which the region had never seen had rendered all of it dust. It had been nine years since we had seen consistent rainfall. In those first years, we tapped the groundwater, then the river. The groundwater had dried up, and we'd run the river dry. Travis Wilkins had torched his fields in frustration. Two of the eight of us with ruined crops had already been forced to sell their land and move to literally greener pastures, and the rest of us were fielding offers for hours. And, as it turned out, we were all dealing with the only person with the means to buy us out, Fred Rowling. Fred's family owned farmland here for two generations, about as long as the rest of us. He was of modest means like the rest of us too, a small town farmer providing for his family and a little more by growing just enough of a small selection of crops, and he was our friend, too, until the drought. You see, Fred's crops weren't ruined. They were thriving, and they had been for years. While the rest of our crops were crumbling to dust in our hands, Fred's were growing tall. Fred didn't have a problem with rainfall. Clouds would flare up and dump buckets of cold, clear water onto his fields, and then dissipate as quickly as they came, just before they might quench anyone else's fields. The first year this happened, when our crops perished and Fred's blossomed, we chalked it up to bad luck or good luck depending on your perspective. When it happened the second year, we were angry, at God for withholding the rain and at Fred for being the beneficiary of another freak of nature. But in the desperation of that third year, with our crops again dead, with the groundwater long since run out, with the river run dry with no hope for irrigation, and with Fred Rowling's field still shining green like the Emerald City, we began to suspect Fred knew something we didn't. His face was swollen, he was spitting blood, and he had lost more than a few teeth by the time I pulled Travis Wilkins off of him. Four of us had gotten roaring drunk and barged into the rowling farmhouse, kicking in the door, beating Fred until he was bloody and barely conscious, and locking his wife and two young sons in an upstairs bedroom. We had cut the power to his house, and so it was dark first of all, and the phones were dead second. We were drunk, but not stupid, and we made sure we would settle this, whatever that would come to mean to us without interference from the sheriff. I had Nicholas Lowell help me get Fred into a chair there in the Rowling's kitchen while Travis ran his bloody knuckles under the tap before wrapping some ice in a towel and holding the package against his already swelling hand. I had asked the three that came with me, Travis, Nicholas, and Rick Watkins, to keep their cool when we got there. The plan was to scare Fred, jolt his secret out of him, but as soon as we were through the door and Travis looked at Fred, the fires that Travis had set on his barren fields flared up into his eyes, and there was no stopping him. Fred could barely sit up under his own power, but I bound his wrists and ankles to the chair with some cord anyway. His eyes rolled up into his head when I walked into his eyeline, and then I turned to address that group of now felons. So, what now? I asked. Nicholas and Rick looked at Travis, sensing my frustration at the events of the last five minutes. Upstairs, through the thin walls, I could hear Fred's boys crying. Why you looking at me? Travis asked. What do you expect? I shook my head. I thought he'd be dead by now, Travis said. Figured y'all'd help me kill him. What are we doing here then? I hadn't expected any of this, but honestly don't know what I expected. I took a moment to take a slow breath through my nose and noticed the whole room smelled of copper. Fred coughed, gurgled, and spit blood onto his own chest. Hey, I said to him. Hey, Fred. But I wasn't going to get an answer. At least not then. I took a drag from my cigarette. I don't know why I had the decency to step outside to smoke, but I had. The others had stayed in, to keep an eye on things. I hadn't planned to become the leader of this gang, or that we'd had formed a gang, but it became clear that no one else would be making decisions. Not far off, I could hear coyotes howling, and then barking, and then growling and yelping, and then howling again. Then they ran off and I heard their calls recede into the distance, and I fought the urge to follow suit. I blew smoke into the air and watched it dance in the bright moonlight while I walked down the path around the side of the Rowling's farmhouse and down the hill to his fields. Lush and green, I could smell the moisture when I got close. Acres of tall stalks of corn. I grabbed a stalk in my hand and shook it around, healthy, firmly planted. Turning back around to face the house, my eyes were drawn upward to a bright window. Fred's wife, Margaret, was looking down at me, watching with interest. But when she saw me turn around, she jumped back and closed the curtains. My eyes followed the edges of the house up, and that's when, in the bright moonlight, I noticed something on the roof of that old farmhouse. Rose, maybe thirty in all, of antenna of all shapes and sizes some short with lots of branches, others tall, slender, and straight. All of them, though, pointed directly at the sky. I closed the door behind me and found Rick, Nicholas, and Travis drinking Fred's beer and staring at the kitchen table in front of them. None of them looked up to meet my eyes when I entered. Fred wheezed through the blood collecting in his nose, but his eyes were open, and for the first time in half an hour, there was life behind them. He talking, I asked my three accessories. They shook their heads, but I got the impression they hadn't noticed Fred come to. How's your head? I asked him. Fred looked up at me, then forced the blood accumulating in his mouth through the gaffes in his teeth, letting it run down his chin and drip onto his chest. The streams of blood spread out into the other blood stains on the front of his shirt blending all the carnage together. We want to know why you're still getting so much rain, Travis said. And why we're not getting any, Rick said. Everyone's been fucked by this drought, except you, I said, just to drive the point home. Fred said something through broken teeth, swollen jowls, and cracked jaws that I decided probably translated to, do I look like a fucking weatherman, and then winced. He shut his eyes and took a few deep, wheezing breaths through his nose. That's exactly what you look like. That's exactly what he looks like, Travis said, getting to his feet. I know how to make him talk. Travis sprung from his spot and around the corner. I knew just where he was going and gave chase, but I could already hear him bounding up the stairs by the time I'd rounded the corner, could hear the crash by the time I got to the stairs, and could hear the screaming by the time I reached the top of them. Travis stood at the bedroom door, howling, throwing his body against it. It didn't budge. The woman and two young boys behind that bedroom door must have anticipated this and barricaded the door. Travis let out a wail as I got to his side and wheeled around on me when I touched his shoulder. You're going to hurt yourself, I said to him, and then he spit on me. He turned back to the door with bald fists and took out years of rage on the wood of that door. It didn't budge, but his knuckles did. By the end, when he was exhausted, his hands were unrecognizable tangles of meat, and the door was smeared red with blood. He looked down at them, at his hands, bent and twisted into useless stumps, and cried. Travis didn't let us ice or wrap the bloody remnants of his hands, and back in the light of the kitchen, the damage was more apparent. Bones stuck out at all angles, no skin was left intact, nothing that resembles fingers were left. One of Fred's eyes had swollen completely shut by this point, and his good one darted around from Travis to Nicholas to Rick and to me. It was the only thing he moved on his body, and occasionally we forgot he was even there, as each of us stewed in our own bitterness. It was like that for a while, hours maybe. When I looked at the clock, it was just past midnight. I looked at Fred, remembering something from earlier, something I had meant to ask. What's with all those antennas you got up there? I asked, raising my head toward the roof as I finished the question. Fred shot his one good eye into mine and stared. His look was wild and angry, like an old wolf that had lost a fight for territory but wouldn't leave. The other wolves would have to kill it put it out of its misery. The four of us, those new felons, stood under the moon and looked up to the silhouetted roof and its forest of antenna. I glanced over at Rick as he took a drag from his cigarette, the end shining brighter with the increase in oxygen illuminating his face, dancing in his upturned eyes. He was a tinkerer, a hobbyist, if anyone had any insight. I thought it would be him, and we all waited for him to consider. When his considerations grew to be too long, and we got impatient, Nicholas spoke up. So what do you think? I don't know. Stumped as you are. It's not for shortwave? Ain't no shortwave need that many antennas. What do you think they're hooked up to? Got me. Gotta be something powerful, though, Surprised the government's not knocking down his door. Could scramble a plane's radar, I reckon. Rick took another drag and then blew a smoke ring. It drifted up into the air and settled perfectly around the moon, catching the moonlight and shining bright like a halo. We watched the smoke ring spread, losing its shape, dissipating into space. Two faces watched the three of us climb the ladder to the roof. Fred's wife and one of his sons wore sneers as they stared at each of us from the bedroom window. They were angry, but they looked tired. It was nearly two o'clock in the morning, and I was sure they'd rather be asleep in bed than held captive in their own house. Travis stayed on the ground. Without functional hands, it would have been impossible for him to climb the ladder. No sooner had the last of us, Nicholas, reached the roof and scurried along on his knees to join us at the first of the antenna, than Travis yelled up after us. What do you see? We, of course, hadn't seen anything, and I yelled as much back down to him. We moved from antenna to antenna, each was different, and Rick was sure they were each cannibalized from something else. One was likely the radio antenna from a big rig. One from a police car. One was a television antenna. They had nothing in common except for the wire attached to each of them, then stapled to the roof, then run along the surface of the roof to a common point near the south of the house. We all scooted along to that point, the point where thirty or so wires came together into a bundle the size of an index finger. I shouted down to Travis if he could see where the bundle of wires led. Back in the house, he said. We followed the wires through the side door, down a hallway and back into the kitchen, where they ran along the corner of the ceiling until they reached a doorway in the back of the room and slipped into the space between the door and the door jamb. Fred saw us looking at the wires through his one good eye. What's that? Basement, he said, matter-of-factly. What are the wires? Communication, he said, again, matter-of-factly. What kind of communication? He shrugged and turned away from us, resigned to knowing we were going down there anyway, whether he told us or not. When I opened the door to the dark basement, we were greeted with the smell first. A strange smell, musty and sweet, vaguely like sugar cooking into caramel on the stove, but none as appetizing. None of the light switches worked, But we soon found a couple of flashlights in a nearby cabinet. The stairs were old, wooden, nearly rotted through. Each step was a gamble, and each one of our 200-pound frames made each stair scream in protest. We took it easy, our boots thudding with cautious purpose on each one of those 15 or so steps. Our flashlights, once into the basement, flicked around hurriedly, following the bundle of wires that led back up to the roof. We followed it twenty or so feet into that basement along the ceiling until it disappeared into a massive Fred Rawlings communication device. Tubes filled with dark liquid. Yellow wires connected to jars filled with some ruddy mixture. Strange contraptions that whirred, rotated, and buzzed. Then, we looked more closely, Most of the jars had something solid inside them. Something suspended in that fluid. Something familiar. Something human. The tubes filled with dark liquid plunged deep into pieces of something. Suspended from the ceiling were long strips of what I at first thought was leather, but wasn't. All of it, all of it twitched and flinched. I followed one of the wires with my eyes, and when I reached its termination, I realized it wasn't a wire at all. It grew straight out of a lump of gray the size of a head of lettuce. When he realized what we were looking at, Rick vomited and collapsed into the corner. I looked back at him and tried to make eye contact, but his eyes were glazed over and pointed down to the ground. Travis wailed half in agony and half in disgust. He hit the basement's brick wall with his mangled hands, smearing it with blood. Then he turned to me, fire and rage in his eyes. He didn't say anything, and didn't need to. He just trudged back up the stairs to the kitchen, where Fred's shouts and curses were soon silenced. Nicholas had walked forward, into the thick of the wires and tubes and jars wide-eyed and, I think, convinced what he was looking at wasn't real. He reached out and flicked his finger against one of the wires and then went rigid. Nicholas, I called out, but he didn't move, didn't answer. Deep in the center of the jungle of organic machinery, I saw movement. Something, two things in fact, rolled toward me and caught the light. Two eyes. Two eyes stared into mine from somewhere in that infernal contraption. I turned at the sight of them and bound up the stairs and out of that house. Sorry about the late episode and the quality of my voice. I've been sick but I wanted to get one of these out anyway. The fog rolled through town on an early Tuesday morning, and then she was there, standing straight and tall as she walked through town on her mated voyage. Her gray clothes matched her pale skin, and certainly matched her pigmentless hair. Watching her glide down those sleepy streets, it seemed as if the color was simply stolen from her long ago. The leather bag at her waist, also ashen and gray, looked heavy, lumpy and sagging from its contents, though she didn't seem to have trouble carrying it. People stood in the window of every building she passed, gawking at the newcomer to this small town. And such a strange newcomer at that. In the small cafe in which I was sipping coffee and eating hash browns, conversation broke out in her wake. Speculations abound, and slanted toward the outlandish and sinister. The overwhelming consensus among those regulars there in that cafe seemed to be that she, whoever she was, brought with her ill will though they also seemed to agree she would not be in town long. Drifters like her were common, apparently, and several of the regulars glanced in my direction when this fact was brought to light. It was true. I was new to this town as well, though I certainly wouldn't have classified myself as a drifter. Attitudes in this town were skewed against new arrivals and I had experienced firsthand how long it could take to be accepted by the local populace. I had lived in that tired mountain town nearly eight months, but was no closer to belonging as I was the day I arrived. And not for lack of trying. For the first months in that town, I didn't stop smiling. I was friendly to each and every face I met, even when they inevitably were not friendly to me. I was a fountain of positivity each day, and collapsed in bed each night, exhausted from the act I was putting on. I arrived in that town to work at the mill, and had not even come far. Only two towns over, but to those around me, I could well have come from a different planet. Oligok, as we discovered her name was, also meant to settle in. The discovery of her name in the days following her arrival set off another round of speculation. Alagak was a strange name, and the peculiarity of her name seemed to reinforce the opinions of those who assumed she was up to no good here. She found a small apartment, though what she furnished the apartment with I do not know. It seemed that all she owned were the clothes on her back and the contents of that leather bag. She stayed in her apartment for the first weeks after her arrival, and then the following month began to emerge once more. She had acquired a storefront on a small side street, some ways from the town center, and set up a small shop of curiosities. Well, one curiosity, or more precisely lots of one type of curiosity. She lined window displays and shelves and cabinets with hundreds of small three or four inch tall carvings. These, it was assumed, by me and most of those I spoke with or overheard regarding Oligoc, were carved by her. She was an artist, and the sculptures were her art. Over the coming years, I assimilated into the local culture, made friends, became part of the fabric of that small society, and Oligoc didn't. She never sold a carving, not to anyone local at least. It was possible that Oligok sold a figure or two to travelers moving through town or tourists during ski season, but it didn't seem to be the case. She opened the small shop every day, and each day more carvings lined in the shelves, cases, and walls. I passed the shop occasionally, sometimes by happenstance and sometimes on purpose, and saw that soon the entire store was overflowing with those small sculptures. On a specific occasion, Walking by, I loitered in the doorway to get a good look inside, at the piles and piles of effigies. I had never really given them more than a glance, but was struck in that moment at their craftsmanship. I saw then that each of the small statues was carved out of the same material, some dark red stone that I wasn't familiar with. Looking at the few that were nearest to me, near the doorway, I was able to see the great care put into each detail. The smallest elements, noses, eyes, hair, were carved with sharp precision into that dark material. I felt a tinge of guilt pass over my chest and then a profound sadness. Oligoc, here, poured her heart into these small knickknacks, that much was obvious, and yet we ignored her. I passed the precipice into the store and reached out my hand, meaning to pick up one of those sculptures and give it a closer examination, but at the last moment I recoiled. My stomach turned a bit as my eyes passed over the whole row of them, and I gave a greater examination to each of their subjects. Horned beasts, snarling beings, hooved figures, cloaked wraiths, a profoundly evil lot. At that moment my eyes caught a pair of grey eyes across the shop and I was face to face with Oligoq, who came from the fog all those years ago, standing tall and motionless as she watched me investigate her art. Her gaze intimidated me, and I stumbled backwards, out of the shop, then hurried off down the street without looking back. One of those small carvings was on the welcome mat in front of my small house the next morning. I didn't see it at first until I had kicked it over while locking my door. It clattered across the small concrete porch and fell into the grass of my front lawn. I leaned down to get a good look at it, sticking up out of those green blades. It had, by coincidence, landed right side up like a cat landing on its feet, and so I already saw what that small carving depicted. A man, or something close to a man. His eyes were wide, small spirals radiated out from his pupils. He thrust his chin out, challenging those who looked upon him. His arms were bent back unnaturally and protruded from his flowing cloak at an odd angle. His hands at the end of each arm opened wide, each finger splayed outward further than should have been possible. Each finger was flattened almost to a knife edge, Behind each ear a small horn rose up only slightly, his hair was wild, and as I watched it seemed to be blowing in that gentle morning breeze, but I knew it was only an illusion caused by the incredible care taken to render each strand. The most troubling aspect of the small sculpture to me was the thing I last observed, because I only saw it once I had lifted it from its resting place in the grass. Each foot of this figure was bare and not actually a foot at all, but rather some approximation made of sharp claws that protruded from all angles out of the end of each leg, and seemed to not function by resting on the ground like your foot or my foot might, but by grasping into the ground itself, digging into dirt or dust or whatever ground he happened to be standing on. I picked the thing out of the damp grass and wiped it with my thumb, spreading the moisture across it. It was cold, I turned it over in my palm, feeling the smooth stone, examining the surface. Something struck me as I looked down on the small sculpture and watched the morning dew evaporate off of it. I couldn't find any tool marks. No obvious areas where the stone had been worked into its current shape. No evidence of the artist. The carving was so precise, so fine, that Alagak had created the illusion that this piece of stone was always precisely this shape. That night, when I arrived home from my shift at the mill, there was another small figure on my doorstep, and the next morning, two more. All three were different, distinct individuals of a similar race of beings. Each of these four carvings had similarities and several features. All of them had similar wide eyes, with spirals emanating from each of their pupils. Each had similar two long fingers that stretched outward unnaturally, and each of their legs terminated in that terrible ring of claws, grasping at some unseen surface. I lined them up on my countertop as I sipped coffee, and contemplated what Oligoc was doing by leaving me these gifts. Oligoc seemed to be expecting me when I entered the shop that morning. She smiled, which unnerved me as I didn't recall having ever seen Oligoc display any emotion in the time she had lived in this small town. The smile froze me in place just inside the door, and then she beckoned me further inside by waving her hand. She stared at me with her grey eyes, behind her grey hair, in her grey clothes, and I thought how peculiar it was that someone who so lacked pigment could look so luminous. For all her lack of color, I felt warmth radiating from her gaze, and building in my chest. This set me at ease, and I finished my journey through the dusty shop to the counter Oligoc stood watch behind. I put the four figures on the counter between us, and before I could ask her what she meant by the gesture, her smile widened, and she had added two more to the pile. Do you like them? She asked. Her voice cut through the still air like sharpened crystal. I noticed harmonies behind even this simple four-word phrase. Her voice was like a song sung by a chorus in a large cathedral. Instantly, I was transfixed. I do, I managed to say, stammering and stuttering those two words. The word do got stuck in my throat three times before I got it out. Those two words made the smile on her face permanent. I'm very proud of them, she explained. Her words seemed to dance through the air in front of my eyes before snaking into my ears. I could feel each one tickle my ear canal on its way to my eardrum, like her words were some forked tongue caressing my inner ear, and the harmonies. How was it that her words were music? You should be, I said, jarring even myself with my earnestness. I would like to buy some more. Oligoc's mouth fell open in mock shock and asked how many. I struggled to even remember what numbers were in that moment for several reasons. First, I had come into that shop that morning to return her knickknacks, not obtain more, but now, here, I was ready to purchase more of them from this wonderful person. And second, of course, as might be obvious by Mary telling, I was completely transfixed by Oligoc in that moment under a spell perhaps, but also completely enraptured by her being. I was, at this point in my life, profoundly lonely. So when I said six more, and she wrapped them all up in paper, along with the six she had already given me, making twelve, and then I handed over quite a lot of money, I felt as though I was not in control of my own actions. She handed them over to me, and our fingers brushed together as I grabbed them, and a jolt pricked my finger like she had rubbed her feet against the rug just before we had touched, and the jolt carried through my arm and wrapped around my heart, and then I blurted out, maybe I could see how you make them. Oligoc's eyes brightened, and I now swear to you that they changed from grey to red for just a moment, and she said, yes, tonight, would you come over? Of course, I said, with an embarrassing amount of enthusiasm. My mirror got more use that night than I had in years. I spent what felt like hours getting my hair to do anything resembling cooperate. I dug out an old suit jacket and dusted it off. My newest pair of jeans were the nicest pants I owned. I had a pair of boots that I hadn't yet worn to the mill, and so I wore those. All in all, through will and brute force, I managed to make myself somewhat presentable for what I was thinking of at the time as a date. I laughed to myself. Though several intervening years since Olagok had drifted into town and made herself a home here, I had never thought, never considered becoming involved with her, yet I had not been the luckiest guy romantically since I had moved to town, and she was striking. I got into my car and picked up a bouquet of flowers along the way. I knew just where she lived. Everyone did. A small apartment above a warehouse on the east side of town. She lived far from her shop and was often seen drifting silently through the streets in the early morning, carrying the day's new carvings in that leather bag she carried into town that first morning. It wasn't the morning now, of course. It was the early evening. The sun had disappeared behind the peaks that surrounded the town, and twilight was soon to give way to night. I adjusted my clothes, ran my fingers through my hair, and shifted my grip on the bouquet. Then I knocked on Oligok's door. She swung the door open and smiled, then took the flowers with a small nod and ushered me into her studio apartment. The apartment she had inhabited for two years was stark and bare, No furniture to speak of, no chairs or tables. The kitchen was likewise bare, no cookware or dishes, and more bizarre, the apartment had, like Oligoc herself, a colorless feel to it. The peeling wallpaper and the dusty wooden floor both gray. The small incandescent lamps also cast a sickly gray light. She kneeled in the center of the room next to that leather bag of hers and put the bouquet of flowers at her side. She pointed in front of her, inviting me to join her on the floor, and I did, unable to resist, and overwhelmingly curious. So, do you want to see how I do it? she asked, although I suspect already knew the answer. As I got to my knees, Oligoc opened her ashen leather bag, retrieving from it a few simple items. A small gray leather pouch, a tarnished spoon, and a large stone box that appeared on first glance to be the same sort of stone that she carved into her figures. She opened the box to show me. Inside was lined with gray felt, and there were six indentations with solid blocks of gray stone. She looked into my eyes, smiled, and said, Okay. Now watch closely. She plunged the spoon into the leather pouch and when she brought it back out, it was piled with a coarse white powder. Scraping the spoon against the wooden floor, she drew a circle with the powder, and when she was done, closed her eyes and mumbled something incomprehensible to herself. What I saw happen next, I still can't rightly explain. The wooden floor disappeared slowly, replaced by some glowing mist contained by the powder she had spread on the floor. She grabbed the stone box, closing it once again, and then held it above the glowing circle. When she lowered the box into the circle, it passed through, disappearing into that brilliant glare. Then, it was gone. And oligarch looked back up at me, a different look in her eyes than when I had arrived. They had gone red again, and this time there was no denying it. I wondered what we were to do now, And to answer my thoughts, Oligoc looked down at the bouquet next to the gleaming circle. I watched as the color drained from each of the flowers of the bouquet I had brought with me in turn. And then, I noticed the same was happening to my clothes. The blue of my jeans dripped off and fell careening into that brilliant portal. Then the browns of my suit jacket. Soon, all the color of my clothes, I assumed the easiest to get to, was gone, and then the color from my fingertips started to bleed out of my skin. Oligoc reached back into the opening and retrieved the stone case, which she put on the floor of the apartment next to the glowing tear in time and space. She unlatched the thing and swung open the top, revealing six new stone figures. Then she looked at me and grinned. The portal shrunk and then closed completely. But just before it did, the contracting hole acted as a lens, briefly throwing what was beyond into sharp focus and I saw a singular eye, large and fiery red, staring back at me. I jumped up and ran to the door. Looking back, I locked eyes with Oligok one last time and saw the profound hurt in them. I could tell she didn't understand why I was leaving and I turned just as she said, Don't go. Those words snaked into my ears and chased me to my car. I fled to my home, where I grabbed as many essentials as I could. I drove out of town that night, and I've never been back. I've heard rumors since then, that only days after I left in such a hurry, a thick fog rolled through that small mountain town, and Oligoc disappeared. My fingertips, they're still grey, and I bet the colour will never return to them. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both The Raincaller and Oligok, Who Came From the Fog, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Fog and to Frailty. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month, except when I'm sick. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. The Phantom Podcast Network on downrightcreepy.com. Follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud for more creepy shows. <laughs>